This week, we continue our discussion of cemeteries in the sea by looking at those who have been lost at sea and the way that they are memorialized on land. Dust off your Gordon Lightfoot records. We're talking about those lost at sea. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So, hopefully you're not still too traumatized by the Titanic episode last week, because uh, if you weren't already, I will warn you in advance, you might be today. This has been a hard topic, and if you have been listening for a while, I I certainly have a fascination with water. Um, I come from the ocean state, it's not surprising. I did the episode on hurricanes back in September. I've talked about the TVA and flooded cemeteries. I talked about the Quabbin cemeteries. I certainly have a fascination with the sea. I grew up surrounded by the ocean, and this is a fascination that has never really died for me. I was slightly surprised. I don't want to say how difficult this episode was to research, but how there is not really a super comprehensive history of memorials to those lost at sea. You can find a lot on very specific shipwrecks. So I will apologize in advance because some of the shipwrecks that I'm going to cover today and their memorializations are ones you've definitely heard of. But that's because... The majority of shipwreck memorials either don't exist or are so obscure that there's virtually no information on them. To me, it was very interesting to look into sort of the psychology of sailors. And I did quite a bit of reading and tried to get people's perspective on how they feel about those lost at sea or how they perceive being lost at sea in the case that they are the one who is taking the risk. All of this was very interesting because I think to a certain degree it explains why there are fewer of these memorials I think than most people would like. There are a lot of famous shipwrecks, um, shipwrecks that happen at sea in the Great Lakes. I'm going to be talking about both of them today, Um, and certainly smaller incidents. Like any other kind of disaster, people choose to memorialize it in their own way. But what I found interesting is that there is a very nonspecific relationship between religion and the sea. Not necessarily specific religious rituals, but uh, definitely religious buildings. So I'm going to be talking about a couple of religious buildings that are in and of themselves memorials. I'm going to be talking about public memorials all of which bring up a lot of important questions with the idea of when there is a disaster, how do we as a community deal with it? And I think that the answer is, is that people often don't know. And I've certainly looked at memorials to disasters before, and I think that if they prove anything, it's that sometimes whatever we do feels very inadequate. And I think that it also proves that memorials are certainly for those left behind as opposed to those who die. Because I found a surprising, I don't want to say lack of caring, but almost nonchalance, where I think that if you are exposed, excuse me, to the dangers of the sea on a regular basis, you don't think about it as much. And I think that the same can be said of people who die in mining accidents or coal mines or anything like that. It's a job. And by accepting that job, you know that there are certain risks. So, I'm going to look at a few of the more noteworthy examples. And I will say, I also want to thank people for their patience. I did take a little vacation this week. And I brought all of my podcasting gear with me, and I recorded not a word. And while it was silly to haul all that gear all that way, I'm okay with that. So I am recording this after I get back to Atlanta. Um, I had pre-recorded two episodes before I left. 
never got to the third. I had high hopes for it, but um, I did do a little research. I took my research book with me on the plane. So let's talk a little bit about shipwrecks. Shipwrecks are certainly as American as apple pie in many senses, and they've been happening since the beginning. One of the most interesting things that I read was talking about just the progression about how the fact that we still have shipwrecks today, far less certainly with, you know, GPS and Loran and all of the modern technology that ships have, but they certainly do still happen. But thinking about being on a ship in the open ocean that's made of wood in the 1700s is frankly terrifying. And I don't know if you've ever been out at sea in a storm, but it is terrifying. It's dark and disorienting, and you're just constantly getting your teeth rattled every time the boat slams. And I've been in storms where they are relatively low seas. And it's amazing, even between being in a bay, which if you're familiar with Rhode Island, Rhode Island is basically shaped like a compass, and there is a V of water in the center. That's Narragansett Bay. But even going from Narragansett Bay to the open ocean, under normal conditions, you can feel the difference. Being outside in open seas is a completely different scenario. And it can be scary even inside the bay when you get hit with waves. So, if you're not, if you're somebody who's landlocked and has lived most of your life landlocked, this might be a little difficult for you to picture, but I tried to paint a picture as accurately as I could. But certainly shipwrecks go back to the very beginning, and particularly on the eastern coast of the United States, fishing was always a way of life um, from the earliest settlers on forward. And for many in the United States, fishing is still a way of life. And this is not something that we necessarily think about, but the same ports that, you know, 150, 200 years ago were really significant continue to be so. So if you were buying fresh seafood, and this is another thing, like if you don't grow up next to the ocean, like I grew up buying fresh seafood off the dock when the fishermen pulled in. For the most people, it's a question of going to the supermarket, but understanding just how crucial even relatively small commercial fishing vessels are to the question of getting seafood to people, you realize very quickly that um, a lot of people are putting their lives at risk to go out there and to get you food. So I picked, there's a couple of other examples I'll talk about, but I did pick probably two of, two or three of the most famous So, I'm not really sure where to start, if I should go chronologically or not. Let's go chronologically. So, before I even talk about boats, I want to talk a little bit about the way that fishermen were treated. So, fishermen are kind of unusual in the fact that there is a lot of architecture that is independently dedicated to them. Now, if you listened to last week's episode about the Titanic, I talked a little bit about the Titanic Memorial Lighthouse, which was atop Siemens Bethel in New York City before it was eventually moved um, to South Seaport. Now, the idea of Siemens Bethels, um, if you are up on your Hebrew, you know that Bethel actually means house of God. So Siemens Bethels are often churches that are dedicated to sailors. Now, probably the most famous of these is in New Bedford, Massachusetts, which, if you remember your Moby Dick, it actually is mentioned in Moby Dick. Um, But seamen are kind of unusual in the sense that they are often out at sea for months. They have very different lifestyles. Um, Eventually, some of them may settle down and marry and have families and children and all of those things. But in the olden days, often they didn't have families to take care of them. So Siemens Bethel in New Bedford dates to 1832, and it grew out of the New Bedford Port Society. There is actually a mariner's home next door, and if you have ever been to New York, New England, that area, 
These type of mariners' homes dotted the coastline, and they took care of folks who had spent their entire life at sea and might not have a family to care for them in their old age. So within, you know, less than 10 years of the United States becoming a country, the mariners' home in New Bedford was founded, and then later they find a church. Um, it's called the Whaleman's Chapel in Moby Dick, if you have read it, um, and it was traditional to visit Seaman's Bethel before departing. And Melville talks about this, about the idea that, you know, even if you're not particularly religious, it's almost a superstition at that point. And sailors certainly are a superstitious lot. Um, Seaman's Bethel is an interesting example. If you have been to the New Bedford Whaling Museum, it's right across the street. It's part of um, the historic landmark district there. It's a non-denominational church. I mean, there it seems like there's almost like a secular religion of the sea when you start to look at all of these examples. Um, certainly there are denominational things. I'm going to talk more about Catholics, particularly Portuguese Catholics in New England in a little while. Um, but from what I can see, the kind of origins of Siemens Bethel are very heavily influenced by Quakers. It's a very holistic religious experience, and it's sort of built out of a shared sorrow for those who are lost at sea, because inside Siemens Bethel, there are cenotaphs on the walls. Now, some of them are just lists of crews that are lost, but some of them are very personal and very intimate, and they are put up by families. And so these religious spaces that are sort of part of the the cult of the fishermen, if you will, become really significant in history. And I'm going to talk about some other examples. And they're not necessarily religious places in the ways that we traditionally think about them. Um, Certainly they hold religious services. You can get married at Siemens Bethel if you want to. um, Have a lovely sea disaster themed wedding, which to me makes about as much sense as having a great Gatsby themed wedding. Not a sea disaster, but he certainly ends up in the water. But they've become tourist attractions now because of their link to the past. Now, I was a little frustrated with this episode because I wanted to talk more about cemeteries. And it's hard because I can find individual graves and cenotaphs and things like that in cemeteries. But overall, it's very difficult to find one resource. Um, And hopefully I have a guest coming on later this month. I'm still waiting for them to confirm with me. Um, That is going to be talking about a series of graves that they have found that are associated with things. But it's interesting because I also read an article talking about the fact that people are very frustrated. And this was an older article, almost 20 years old, honestly, at this point. Um, who were frustrated by the lack of an actual memorial in New Bedford, despite the fact that it is still a booming fishing town. Now, in Siemens Bethel, um, the names of those who have been lost at sea going back to 1925 are read um, every year on Memorial Day. And there are a lot of ocean-themed statues in town. So probably the most famous is the Whaler statue, which is outside the public library in New Bedford. If you search just for New Bedford, Massachusetts, you'll probably see this image. Um, They have a statue of Poseidon outside the visitor center. Um, They have a statue of Prince Henry the Navigator. There are a lot of Portuguese in New Bedford. The Portuguese in particular come over from the Azores and they settle in New England because they are fishermen. There is a frieze in Buttonwood Park that shows the local industries, and there is a fisherman in that. But people are often frustrated by the fact that there isn't actually a memorial to fishermen, uh, despite the long and still booming history of fishing in New Bedford. Um, And there was a lot of comparisons to other places, Galilee, Rhode Island, Gloucester, Massachusetts, which we'll talk about in a little while. Um, And they were saying that, you know, just associating New Bedford with whaling is what most people do. But obviously, whaling hasn't been a thing for quite some time. If you have eaten scallops, odds are they come from New Bedford, Massachusetts. So how do you do this? And this was a really interesting idea to me because you don't see a ton of contemporary sculpture depicting contemporary folks. But part of me would love to see an updated image of a fisherman, like a true workingman statue as a memorial. 
and granted, I am neither a sculptor nor a fundraiser, so I have no power to do this. But doing the research to this, I think that most of us tend to have that old-timey view of mariners, and we don't necessarily think of it being a contemporary thing. Um, I had a professor in college, though, who did a lot of research about the fishermen of Galilee and looking at their lifestyle choices, looking at their educational levels, why they chose the profession they did. Did it have ethnic ties? Did it have family ties? All of which I think are very interesting questions. And one of the reasons that I think we have this impression is that because there's not a lot of contemporary literature and there's not a lot of contemporary attention paid to it. And while I was doing this research, somebody started talking to me about the show Deadliest Catch, which I confess I have never seen. Um, And apparently Deadliest Catch does kind of portray it in a modern sense. I haven't seen it, so I can't comment it, but I'm kind of curious to watch it now. Just having read what I've read and done the research that I do, because I think that it would be interesting to look at folks like that and to look at shows like that and to look at people who choose those careers And to have a modern memorial that reflects that. Just off the top of my head. Now, there are a number of 19th century disasters that do have memorials. And I read up on them and I was kind of interested. Because the majority of them are like a single plaque. And it depends on where they are. A lot of them are on the West Coast, which was something that surprised me. Um, Probably my favorite was the Brother Jonathan Cemetery. And this is um, in Crescent City, California. And this was a mail steamer that was lost July 30th, 1865. So right after the end of the Civil War. And this was lost um, on St. George Reef, which if you are a lighthouse enthusiast, which I certainly was growing up, I loved lighthouses, you can blame them on getting me into architectural history. They were the gateway drug. Um, St. George Reef is notorious. It's actually been deactivated and then a volunteer group reactivated it. Um, it's notorious as being one of the worst light stations in the United States. Um, so the Brother Jonathan sank off of there. And... Um, Obviously, the majority of those aboard did die. Um, I believe 225 of like 240 died. And they started to wash into shore. And from what I can read that there was a Masonic cemetery, which was founded in 1845. So 20 years before. So it had been in use. It was actually kind of part of the city cemetery. Like there was a Masonic section, an Oddfellow section, the city section. So there, there were 66 unidentified individuals buried in a mass grave, plus 28 identified individuals who all had headstones. And then over time, I couldn't find an accurate history. There's a lot of just like vague history. Um, Apparently, the area was redeveloped. And you can see today, it's like a small round park with houses and businesses all around it. Um, which I guarantee you that some of the poor folks from the Brother Jonathan, which was the name of the ship, uh, are buried underneath those houses and businesses because, you know, exhumation never works. But apparently they moved the city cemetery. They moved the Masonic. They moved the Oddfellows, but they did not move this. So it was left, and the remainder of the headstones are now laid flat, kind of like in a semicircle around a center monument that's flanked by two bronze anchors. This is maybe the grandest of these because I looked at a lot of examples. Um, So the SS Sultana is another good example that was actually a steamship on the Mississippi. Again, there is a lovely plaque dedicated to it. But if you didn't know what you were looking for, these plaques are kind of uh, obscure. Um, And often these are marked long after the actual event itself. So it's so interesting to read these accounts because there's a lot of guesswork, a lot of unknowns. Um, another one that I thought was pretty significant was the sinking of the Lady Elgin, which is one of the most notorious on the Great Lakes. And the Lady Elgin is interesting for a couple of reasons, um, mainly because, and I 
did hours of research on this. I'm kind of frustrated with how much time I actually spent doing this research. Like, supposedly there was a mass grave of all the folks who washed ashore. So the Lady Elgin was actually struck by another ship offshore. Sank very, very quickly. And supposedly all of these folks washed ashore and they were buried either in Winnetka or in nearby Lakewood, Illinois. So this was a Great Lakes sinking. That was, you know, I read a lot of these, and the Lakewood Historical Society has tried to do research into where this mass grave was. Nobody really knew. And it was frustrating, because you're kind of like, how does nobody know? But also, I think about it, it's like, if I came into a situation, like, today we have the wherewithal to deal with that. But if suddenly just dead bodies started piling up on your shore, you got to bury them quickly, particularly if the ship sinks in the summer. And so you understand how that could be lost. And they talked about how there was wooden crosses, and obviously the wooden crosses disintegrated. Um, But to me, it was interesting that the place where the disaster happened, they have all these rumors and legends, whereas Milwaukee, which is where the majority of the folks who are on the Lady Elgin came from, if you go to Calvary Cemetery there, again... I spent way too much time looking at Calvary Cemetery because it's actually a fascinating cemetery and has some really cool architecture. They repurposed their receiving vault to make it into a mausoleum. Kind of obsessed. I want to learn more about it. And their chapel is also super sexy. But I digress. This is These are the holes that you go down when you start doing research. Um, but there, if you walk around, you're going to see dozens of headstones that make note to the fact that people died on the Lady Elgin. Whether or not they were actually returned for burial, the majority of them are cenotaphs. And this is what's frustrating, because unless you have hours to go through the find a grave for a cemetery, unless you have the time to walk the cemetery, these folks hide in plain sight. Now, even really famous shipwrecks, so the one I can think of off the top of my head is the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. For those that you that are Jaws fans, this is the one that's kind of famously immortalized in the speech that Quint gives on the boat because he talks about how he was on the USS Indianapolis, which was um, torpedoed by a Japanese submarine while delivering one of the two atomic bombs. You know, this is one of the most infamous shipwrecks of... World War II, and it took more than 50 years of constant lobbying by the survivors and by the families of those killed to get a memorial put up. So when you have sometimes a lag of 50 or 60 years, you can also see how information gets lost. Okay, slight rant over. So there are two major shipwrecks that I want to talk about. And I'm going to do them out of order now. I kind of I kind of tried to go with the earlier stuff just to be a little bit more informative to give you kind of a little bit of background. The two biggies that I looked at are the sinking of the Andrea Gale in 1991 and the shipwreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald in 1975. Both of which you have probably heard about. Um, I definitely alluded to the Edmund Fitzgerald at the beginning because I was talking about Gordon Lightfoot. The Edmund Fitzgerald was immortalized in his 1976 song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And the Andrea Gale came to attention um, in the late 90s with the publication of Sebastian Younger's book, The Perfect Storm. Now, I reread The Perfect Storm, which I had read a couple of times before, um, on the plane uh, while I was traveling. And if you have not read it, and if you are interested in this, I would recommend it. It's written in a super concise, journalistic style. He explains some very concept, some very high concept ideas about seamanship, about meteorology, in just such concise, clear ways. It is brutal at times, because it is a book about the death of six men. And it's brutal in a way that I think even people who are true crime junkies can't necessarily appreciate. But I want to start with this because, first of all, this is the way I did the research. I reread The Perfect Storm, and then afterwards I did the research on the Edmund Fitzgerald. And part of me thinks that this explains, like, understanding why, first of all, The Perfect Storm was so popular, both as a book and a movie. 
um, though the movie certainly is problematical in a number of ways. But I did enjoy rewatching that more than I enjoyed rewatching Titanic last week. Um, there's something that's just very appealing about George Clooney as a hunky working man. I guess I'm more into blue collar guys the older I get. There, it is problematic, and I understand that, and the filmmakers were actually sued by several of the families for taking ridiculous liberties with the life, uh, the lives and the stories of the men who were killed. Um, but the movie is, it's based on a true story, but a lot of it is fiction, and a lot of it was combining different stories from the book, some of which happened years before, some of which happened, you know, at, on completely different vessels, to make it a more engaging film. It's a movie. So let's start by talking about that. So the story that is told in The Perfect Storm is the story of the so-called Halloween Gale of 1991. And I remember this because I remember I had to wear a rain slicker on Halloween because we got a terrible nor'easter in New England. There's a picture of me dressed as a princess wearing a turtleneck and a rain slicker. Welcome to what life is like in a cold place. So the Andrea Gale was a 70-foot sword boat. Um, catching swordfish. Um, she had a 20-foot beam. So I, I give you these dimensions to kind of like allow you to picture how big this boat is. This is not a small boat. This is not like a pleasure cruiser that you take out for the day, like a little Boston whaler. She was built in 1978. Now, interestingly enough, 1978 is a pretty significant year in Gloucester for another reason. So she is birthed in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Which Gloucester, Massachusetts, throughout its history, has lost roughly 10,000 men to the sea. Um, Gloucester is a longtime fishing community, and they are basically known for this long history. So they were founded in 1623. So between 1623 um, and like the mid 20th century, I mean, the numbers are probably higher than 10,000. That's the estimated number. Because back in the day, I mean, obviously, even as early as the Titanic, I talked last week about how we don't know exactly how many people died on the Titanic because they didn't take great records and people used assumed names. And when a ship sinks, you don't have any information other than that. But in that 10,000, um, the most recent loss had been in 1978. So in 1978, there were nine men who died. And their names were recorded. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this. In seafaring towns, the town halls often pay tribute. So if you go to Gloucester, Massachusetts, or if you have seen the movie The Perfect Storm, they do show Gloucester Town Hall, where the men of all the known names are listed on cenotaphs on the wall. So the ship built 1978, ironically the same year that nine men die, in terms of sword fishing, there is a lot to kind of understand and appreciate. Um, I'm not going to get too deep into the fishing aspect of it, but understand that chronic overfishing in the United States has in many ways affected sh fishermen's lives. So what was previously dangerous, which was fishing on the George Banks off what is today Cape Cod in Massachusetts, in many ways has no longer been possible. So this pushes fishermen further and further out to sea to find big fish, particularly big game fish. And to give you an idea of how big swordfish are, um, they often mistakenly hook mako sharks instead of that, um, which mako sharks um, are pretty horrific. Um, picture like giant, not quite jaws size, but giant sharks. Um, apparently the only way to kill them is to shoot them in the head with a shotgun. Uh, fishing is a dangerous and frankly horrific business. Um, definitely appreciate it the next time you order fish for dinner. And so as a result, this ship was caught offshore during this horrific storm. And this horrific storm was caused by a combination of things. So first of all, it was caused by a late season hurricane, Hurricane Grace, which was coming up from the Caribbean. There was a huge storm front coming down from Canada, and then a cold front coming in from over the Great Lakes. And the three of these essentially collide out at sea. Now, this 
storm will cause a terrible storm surge all along the coast, but the storm doesn't hit the land as hard as it hits at sea. This is like a once in a century storm. That's why they call it the perfect storm. And it's one of those things that like had any one of the factors been removed, it probably wouldn't have been nearly as bad. So I'm going to read you just like a few snippets and I just kind of was marking stuff off. Um, This is not in any particular order, but this just kind of gives you an idea. So, quote, if the fishermen lived hard, it was no doubt because they died hard as well. In the industry's heyday, Gloucester was losing a couple hundred men every year to the sea, roughly 4% of the town's population. Sometimes a storm would hit the Grand Banks, which the Grand Banks are a stretch of sea off Nova Scotia, and half a dozen ships would go down, with a hundred men lost overnight. On more than one occasion, Newfoundlanders woke up to find their beaches strewn with bodies. Now, when we're talking about this, keep in mind, so New England is in close proximity to Canada. And both of the shipwrecks I'm going to be talking about today are somewhat complicated by the fact that there are two countries involved, so that's worth saying. Quote, more people are killed on fishing boats per capita than in any other job in the United States. You would be better off parachuting into forest fires or working as a cop in New York City than longlining off the Flemish cap. One man from the Coast Guard Cutter had survived two days wearing nothing but his underwear in the North Atlantic. Later, when it was asked how long it would take him to warm up after his ideal, ordeal, not ideal, I'm sure it was not ideal, he said without a hint of irony, oh, just three or four months. A mature hurricane is by far the most powerful event on Earth. And the combined nuclear arsenals of both the United States and the former Soviet Union do not contain enough energy to keep a hurricane going for just one day. A typical hurricane encompasses a million cubic miles of atmosphere and could provide all of the electric power needed in the United States for three or four years. Like, just the idea of the might and the power of the sea... um, The other thing that really struck me about this was that as they started to go into the lives of the fishermen that were on the Andrea Gale, which I'm going to talk about them in a second, they are willing participants in this. They are aware of the dangers, and many of them have faced dangers before. They talk a lot about their past scrapes and things that happened, all of which are pretty traumatic. Um, Any one of them would convince me not to do this again. Um, but the thing is, the money is so good. Like, stupid, stupid amounts of money. Um, so all of the folks on this ship, for the most part, are in their 30s. So the Intergail was captained by a man named, um, Billy Tyne, Frank Billy Tyne, who, interestingly enough, I, uh, I read he was actually born the day before my mother. So he is one day older. He was born on January 29th, 19... 19- You know, maybe we won't tell the year. We won't embarrass my poor mother. Um, So he's in his late 30s when he dies on the Andrea Gale. He is the captain. Um, He has a wife, Jody, and he has two daughters at the time. Um, Robert Shatford, who is born in 1961. So these two characters, if you have seen the movie, this is George Clooney plays Billy Tyne. Robert Shatford is played by Marky Mark, Mark Wahlberg. Um, Dale Murphy. Dale Murphy was from Bradenton, Florida. Alfred Pierre, who um, is the only black member of the crew. He comes from New York City. He is the one that if you try to search for him, there's not much out there about him. Um, David Sullivan, who was known as Sully. Um, and Michael Moran, who was known as Bugsy. Um, and Bugsy was the youngest crew member at 29. So these men are all between, you know, late 20s through 40, basically. I think 39 was the oldest member of the crew. All heavily experienced fishermen. Now, I read in the book that apparently Billy Tyne said he worked for a, quote, vault manufacturer. And I was like, oh, man, tell me there's a cemetery connection. Tell me this man made cemetery vaults. But other than that one reference, I couldn't find any other note. He worked for, like, an import-export business owned by his father. So I don't know if it was 
like bank vaults or something like that. It was probably something boring like that, not concrete burial vaults. But man, how great would that be if that was part of the story? The interesting thing is, is they recount a couple of stories where, for example, Dale Murphy, before he left on the Andrea Gale, went to see his mother and she kept asking him, like, is your burial insurance up to date? Is your burial insurance up to date? And he just looked at her. He goes, Ma, I'm going to be buried at sea. And they recount this story of um, how Robert Shatford, um, quote, they rented a movie called The Fighting Sullivans about five brothers who died on a U.S. Navy boat during World War II. It is his mother's favorite. Sitting there, watching the movie and thinking about his brothers, Bobby started to cry. He was not a man who cried easily. Finally, Bobby said he was upset by the idea of all his brothers fishing and that if anything happened to him anywhere, he wanted to be buried at sea. And he said, just bury me at sea. Promise me that. So it's so interesting that there is this adversarial, but also, and and granted, I may be getting a little over-emotional about this, and I'm not just portraying pure facts, but this is why I say that these memorials are very much for the family, because I think that the men who accept the risk of fishing and the men who risk the sailing, whether for whatever it is, because we're going to be talking about cargo ships later, they're very aware of this. And so I think that none of them would expect to have a grand sculpture or a grand memorial made to them. Now, it is worth noting that both Billy Tyne and Robert Shatford actually do have cenotaphs. Both of, their, both of them are in Beechbrook Cemetery in Gloucester. Um, apparently, Billy Tyne's... I can't tell if she's his wife or ex-wife. I think it's ex-wife Jody had his name added to the stone for his parents. Um, Robert Shatford has a gravestone all his own that was erected by his mother before she died in 1999. From what I could see, I do not believe that the other four men have cenotaphs. They were all memorialized um, on a at a service, which was held on November 17th, 1991. I read the newspaper article about this. Um, Gloucester is very interesting. Um, Gloucester is a very heavily Portuguese and Italian based seaport, which is interesting because (laughs) we obviously have a whole bunch of like Scotch Irish on this particular boat. But uh, two of the Catholic parishes in town, I feel like it's worth mentioning. So if you've seen The Perfect Storm, they show St. Anne's, which St. Anne's was actually where the memorial service was held on November 17th, 1991, for the Andrea Gale. Um, St. Anne's has seen better days in terms of being Catholic Church, but there are some remarkable murals that you can find great pictures of online that actually are, you know, they are kind of pastoral scenes which show the fishing industry and they show boats. And again, this whole idea of having a religious place to come to. Not surprisingly, the other Catholic church in Gloucester, wait for it, is called Our Lady of Good Voyage. Built in 1892, um, it was built to serve Portuguese fishermen who were flooding in. And it's actually based off the church of um, Santa Maria Magdalena on the island of Pico in the Azores. Um, The current church, I think, is from like 1915, somewhere around there. And if you look, it's on the tallest hill in town, the same way that Siemens Bethel in New Bedford is built on what's called Johnny Cake Hill. This is on the tallest hill in town in Gloucester, so you can't miss it. Um, And when you get to the top, there is a statue of Mary. But instead of the baby Jesus, Mary is holding a Gloucester schooner. Now, the one that stands atop the church now is actually a fiberglass replica. The original one, if you're curious, you can actually see in the Cape Ann Museum. The idea that it's so ingrained in the culture that it becomes part of your religion, that it becomes part of that. Like, to me, it's very interesting that all of these places are in many senses a memorial because it's so much a part of the fabric of life. Now, also, if you have been to Gloucester, you cannot avoid (laughs) the man at the wheel. And so the man at the wheel, you are probably familiar with, even if you haven't seen the sculpture, because 
it was actually adopted in 1904 as a symbol of the Gordon's fishermen. So this is a sculpture by Leonard Krask, which was erected for the 300th anniversary of the town of Gloucester. It is on like a little pavilion that looks out directly over the ocean, right in downtown Gloucester. It was unveiled in 1925. <clears throat> so the inspiration was a 1901 painting by the Gloucester artist A.W. Bueller. And like I said, it was actually adopted by the Gordon's Fisherman. So when you see the Gordon's Fisherman wearing his hat and his slicker at the wheel, that is very much the same image of the man at the wheel sculpture in Gloucester. And this sculpture was dedicated essentially as a cenotaph to all of those who had died. Um, and it's very interesting. It's, it's simple in many ways. So it is a cast bronze sculpture. And the only kind of quote that's there is, they that go down to the sea in ships, which is a quote from the 107th Psalm. And then it has 1623 to 1923. I have only been there once, but it was very interesting. Um, I was there in 2009, and I had driven up with some friends to visit Hammond Castle, which is kind of this famous building um, in Gloucester. And I really wanted to see this statue. <laughs> And so we went down there, and by the time we went down there, it was pouring rain, like driving rain. And so it was quite an experience to be there in the dark and the rain. And you get the impression, just because your back is to the sea, and looking out, there's nothing. There are no lights, and it's quite a powerful experience. So if you are ever up in that area, I will definitely post a picture. It's, it's quite the experience. But, as I said, it was just the sculpture for a very long time. So in 2000, they decided to add cenotaph tablets. And I don't remember what year they went back to, but um, what they actually did was they had the granite donated, and then they had the bronze plaques that went on the granite cast. Um, so it cost them about $100,000, but it was all raised through community funds. So you can see just how important the township thinks this is. So now if you want to see the names of those who have been lost at sea in Gloucester, you no longer actually have to go to Town Hall because they have replicas of the cenotaphs right there at the memorial. There also, interestingly enough, is, and this is not necessarily cemetery related, but uh, there's a women's memorial in Gloucester as well, which was also erected um, in like the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, $550,000, so half a million dollars they raised for this, and all but 45000 of it, which came in one lump sum at the end, was raised by, like, a mailer campaign. This gives you an idea of the communal grief and the communal understanding of grief. That, Like, even if you haven't lost somebody personally, you have a friend or a neighbor. And it reminded me very much last week of them talking about the woman that they interviewed on the street about the Titanic, where she was literally just pointing at people and saying, well, she lost a son and she lost a husband and she lost a brother. And the idea that it creates sort of these multi-generations that are lost as a result. Now, as for what actually happened to the Andrea Gale, that's a matter of some conjecture, and I would recommend that you read the book if you're actually curious about it. But certainly, Sebastian Younger, in his book, gives a good shot at kind of laying out what could have happened. And obviously, it's a particularly horrific storm um, with reported rogue waves topping 70 feet, some possibly as high as 100 Having been out in 10-foot seas, I, I virtually can't even imagine it. Um, but for whatever reason, the boat probably down-flooded and sank. Um, whether it was flipped, whether the engine failed, like, whatever happened. And I think one of the reasons for these memorials is because people just don't know what happened. And I think that when I get to the Edmund Fitzgerald next, you'll kind of understand what I mean. Um, but it was just interesting when I read the accounts of what the conditions were like for the Edmund Fitzgerald, which was a considerably larger ship. Um, I can't even imagine the horrific seas that the Andrea Gale was in. Um, because the Edmund Fitzgerald was reporting 35-foot waves and gale force winds, which are like, start at like 70, 70 to 90. Um, 
the Andrea Gale was experiencing conditions much worse than that in a boat a fraction of the size. Um, so I think that part of these memorials is that, you know, it's almost too horrific to imagine what happens to your loved ones. Um, all right. So let's talk a little bit about the Edmund Fitzgerald. Um, the Edmund Fitzgerald, I think, in many ways has stuck with people's consciousness because it is a relatively modern ship. It was launched in 1958, and at the time, it was the largest ship on the Great Lakes. Um, in the 17 years that it was active, it made over 700 trips on the Great Lakes. Um, the name comes from the president of Northwestern Mutual at the time. Um, I'm guessing that there probably wasn't a junior for him um, because the name is quite notorious now. The ship was 729 feet compared to the Andrea Gale 70, uh, weighed 13,000 tons and had a beam, which is like the width of the ship, of 75 feet. And it made usually about six runs per year of taconite, which is a type of raw iron ore. Now, if you have listened to The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald by Gordon Lightfoot, while it is a catchy tune, I kid you not, I used to have a great uh, a sixth grade class. Um, they loved the song The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. I don't know how it came up in class one day. I think it was November 10th, which uh, November 10th, 1975 was the day the Edmund Fitzgerald sank. And these kids love that. They used to jam out to that song, which if you're familiar with Gordon Lightfoot, um, while he has some catchy tunes, I wouldn't exactly say that it's a jam out type of song, but for fun. Um, so yeah, that's my weird history with the Edmund Fitzgerald. But they would take this iron ore back and forth. Um, and so generally they would leave from Duluth and they were heading to Zug Island. I know, terrible name. Where there was an iron plant. It's uh, off the coast of Detroit. So if you listen to the song, it says it's leaving from Wisconsin, going to Cleveland. Not true. And Gordon Lightfoot later was actually incredibly embarrassed. And if you hear him perform the song live, he has changed a lot of the lyrics to be more accurate. But he basically was inspired by an article that he read in the paper, which just goes to prove that you shouldn't always believe everything that you read. Um, as I said, they were facing like 35-foot waves, and they know this because the waves were breaching the deck. Um, like 70 to 90 mile per hour winds. Nobody knows what happened to the Edmund Fitzgerald. Whatever happened was very quick. What the Andrea Gale and the Edmund Fitzgerald have in common is that both of them lost radio contact. And when you lose radio contact, odds are you have lost your antenna, which means that you have also lost your Loran and GPS and basically all navigational aids. You're back in the 19th century. We do know that they were about 17 miles from Whitefish Bay. Whitefish Bay on the Upper Peninsula of Michigan is, you know, a major shipwreck spot because a lot of people are making the last rush to try to get into a harbor at least in the storm unfortunately on the night the Edmund Fitzgerald sank both the navigational beacon and the lighthouse at Whitefish Point were also not working because they had experienced a power failure so they are out there in 90 mile per hour winds 35 foot seas it's a big boat and what I have kind of read is that big boats while they are durable, they also kind of die harder, from what I can see. Um, Tom Farnquist, who is one of the founders and the director of the Great Lakes Shipwreck um, Museum, says, quote, everyone knows it took on water, but why? And there are, there's so much speculation about this. I'm not going to speculate now. What we do know is that it broke in two, most likely on the surface, um, and it came to rest roughly 550 feet below the surface of Lake Superior. Um, Lake Superior, like the North Atlantic, is extremely cold. So like the Andrea Gale, no bodies have ever been recovered from the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Uh, the colder the water, and I talked about this last week with the Titanic, um, you do not have the development of gut bacteria and the bloat that makes bodies float normally unpleasant but it's true um 
the interesting thing about the Edmund Fitzgerald is I think that, I already said, I think it's interesting because we don't tend to think of modern shipwrecks. But there have been more than 800 shipwrecks over the 250 years, you know, we have been using the Great Lakes, which averages out to a shipwreck once in 11 days. That's crazy when you think about it, just how many people have died. And I mentioned the Lady Elgin before, that there are a lot of, you know, maritime disasters, the Edmund Fitzgerald is tough because there have been a lot of arguments about salvage rights. So Tom Farnquist, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum in a minute, is on one side of the argument. Frederick Shannon, who is a retired cop from Flint, Michigan, he is another one. He, so he spent $75,000 to take a submersible down. And his goal was to find the bell of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which eventually it was found. And he was very interested in why the Edmund Fitzgerald sank. And so he started to photograph all of the pieces and claims that he actually photographed and found a body down there that was still wearing its coveralls and was wearing, like, survival gear. And he tried to use this as sort of fodder to argue that the crew was aware that the Edmund Fitzgerald was going to sink and that some sort of massive structural failure had occurred. And I really, I really want to punch this guy because as much as I respect everybody's ability to do research and to look into questions like this, I think this is tacky as hell and I don't think he had any right to do it. And the Canadian government apparently agrees with me because they actually have very strict regulations about being able to dive down to the Edmund Fitzgerald now. Um, Shannon also has like looked at navigational charts and he claims that like part of the shipwreck is in American waters, part is in Canadian. I don't care. Stay out of it. The fact that you found an intact body means that there are human remains down there. That means it's a grave site. Stay out. And I don't care if people think I'm a jerk. I'm sorry, I don't think that there is anything down there that is going to prove anything now, almost 50 years after the boat sank, that is going to have relevance. We know that there are intact human remains. Stay out. And there has been salvage. 1995, Terence Tysol and Mike Z actually used Trimix gas to access, like they actually did a deep dive. 500 feet down is deep for a scuba dive, if you are not aware of this. And Trimix gas is actually a mix of oxygen, helium, and nitrogen. To give you an idea of the dangers of diving at this depth, so it takes six minutes to get down the 550 feet. You have six minutes of time to do your survey, and then it takes you three hours to get back to the surface so you don't get the bends. The bends is like the problem with nitrogen building up in your blood if you're not familiar with scuba diving. 1995, they found the bell and they recovered it. This, to me, feels, again, I know that there are probably human remains still on the Titanic. I talked about it last week. It's where I got the title of the episode. To me, it, it's, it's very questionable. To me, this is bothersome because the fact is, if you talk to family members, family members don't want to know. They don't care. Knowing what caused the Edmund Fitzgerald to sink is not going to bring people back. So I have, like, for this, it has... I guess it's the same way that, you know, like we can use data found on archaeological digs to understand more about the people and how they lived and their nutrition and what killed them. I think that there are very thin lines. And I said this before when I was talking about NAGPRA and the fact that white people get reburied and the Native Americans get sent to the museum. And it's I feel the same way here where the only people who have a right to say something about the Edmund Fitzgerald are those whose family members are down there. You are an enthusiast, and I understand that you were trying to do this for educational purposes. Shannon claims he was trying to write a book and do a documentary, which there have been documentaries about the Edmund Fitzgerald. Still feels, still feels wrong to me. This one, like I said, I read a lot of articles. It leaves me with a nasty taste in my mouth. And it's interesting because if you are familiar with Cleveland's Great Lakes Brewing, which I have been there when I was in Cleveland, they actually have an Edmund Fitzgerald Porter. Yes, there is a shipwreck beer. And a lot of family members are pissed about this. They sell coasters and, you know, playing cards, all of which have images of the Edmund Fitzgerald 
And families receive nothing from this. And I will say likewise in terms of the royalties from the perfect storm. Um, this to me is also a little questionable. That there are some ethical issues in terms of, you know, are we talking about this and are we using these images for a positive reason? So if they were going to sell Edmund Fitzgerald Porter and they were going to take whatever portion of that money and they were going to put it in a college fund for these folks, kids and grandkids. Okay, that's a different story. If they were going to donate it for educational purposes to the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum, that's a different story. But just profiting off a famous shipwreck? And granted, maybe I'm being too much of a purist here. But like I said, it makes me feel a little squidgy on the inside. Um, so as I said, the bell was retrieved July 4th, 1995. Um, and there is an agreement with the families that the bell must remain at the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum. And this was something that was a little controversial because they tried to send it on like a tour around the United States and they got shut down. So Whitefish Point, which is, as I said, 17 miles from where the ship sank, is where the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum is located. Um, and it was founded by a combination of divers, teachers, and shipwreck enthusiasts. They focus on the over 500 shipwrecks kind of just in Lake Superior. Um, they cover all of the roughly 6,000 shipwrecks that have happened across the Great Lakes. Um, there's something like 200 just near Whitefish Point. Um, they do have a heavy focus on the Edmund Fitzgerald. It is obviously the most famous. And they talked to like one of the guides there and said, you know, like how often are you asked about the Edmund Fitzgerald? And they say every day. And obviously, being in part of a major folk song, it all of this draws attraction to it. Um, there is also an anchor that's on display in Detroit, which was from the Edmund Fitzgerald. It had been lost on a previous trip, and they retrieved it, and now it's another memorial. Um, but so the memorial to the 29 men that died on the Edmund Fitzgerald is there. Um, they ranged in age from age 20, was the youngest, um, Carl Peckall, um, to Eugene O'Brien, excuse me, not Eugene, excuse me, Ernest McSorley. Eugene O'Brien was also there, but, uh, Ernest McSorley was the captain. He was born in 1912, same year the Titanic sank. Um, the majority of these men are from either Wisconsin or Minnesota, so they are not actually from the Detroit area, but that is where the majority of the memorials are. From what I can see, only one man on the Edmund Fitzgerald has like a headstone cenotaph, and that's Blaine Wilhelm, um, which is at Mount Hope Cemetery in Ashland, Wisconsin. He is like kind of added to the tombstone for his family, and he also was a veteran of both World War II and Korea, so he has a military marker there. But for the most part, these are remembered on the memorial that is there where the bell is. Their names were read every year for a long time. They still have a memorial uh, every year at the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum. Um, Split Rock Lighthouse in Minnesota, um, which if you don't follow them, they have great social media. They do lots of sunrises and show all the crazy weather at the lighthouse. I would definitely recommend it. Um, they've got kind of like a great new social media person who's joined in the last year, if you are interested in that type of thing. Um, but Split Rock Lighthouse memorializes them every year. Um, and then lastly, I want to talk about one more church. Uh, again, if you have listened to the Gordon Lightfoot song, um, he talks about the Mariner's Cathedral, which what he's actually talking about is the Detroit Mariner's Church. Um, this is a Gothic revival church that was originally founded in 1842 as a mission for sailors, similar to Seaman's Bethel in New Bedford. Um, originally, it functioned as part of an Episcopal diocese, but now it is a non-denominational church that uses the Anglican prayer book, which, if you don't remember, you're Henry VIII. Anglican is the original English form of Episcopalianism. Episcopal is the American version. Here in the United States, the Anglicans are a slightly more conservative branch of the Episcopal Church, so they kind of have broken off and done their own thing. Um, Julia Anderson originally donated the land, and I, I really love this. So when the Erie Canal was completed um, and terminated near Detroit, 
um, she found that it brought many sailors who were sort of marauding and godless. So she donated the land where her mansion actually stood um, upon her death for the construction of this church to try to evangelize the sailors. Not sure how that's going. Um, it's really an interesting building um, because like Siemens Bethel, it definitely was a place that people came. Again, I think a lot of it is less about religion, more about superstition. Sailors are a superstitious lot. Um, unluckily, it had to be moved in 1955. And you can actually see pictures of this in Time magazine where they literally jacked this enormous stone building up and they moved it for the construction of the Civic Center in Detroit. And when they moved it, they found a very unusual thing. They found that the Underground Railroad actually went through the Detroit Mariners Church. Um, and there were secret tunnels underneath. Similar, again, to Siemens Bethel, they have a Blessing of the Fleet every year in March. I, this is something I thought everybody knew about, and I mentioned this to somebody recently, and they were like, what are you talking about? Growing up again near the ocean, the Blessing of the Fleet is a big thing. In Rhode Island, you know, there's like a road race that goes along with it. And I mean, I think everybody's seen like a, an old lady break a bottle of champagne against the hull of a ship, but like the actual Blessing of the Fleet is pretty impressive. Um, Apparently, everybody knew the Edmund Fitzgerald was doomed because it took three tries to break the champagne bottle when they blessed it. Hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? Um, so up until 2006, every year they memorialized and read the names of the 29 men who died on the Edmund Fitzgerald. At that point, they switched it over and they wanted to make it less specific. I think maybe because they also felt like, hey, there have been so many shipwrecks. Hey, let's not focus on just this one. Because Edmund Fitzgerald obviously gets an obnoxious amount of press. And so now they ring the bell eight times as opposed to 29. And that's one ring for each of the Great Lakes, two for the major rivers, and the last one for sailors that have been lost in military disasters. Which you will notice, again, if you're looking for shipwreck memorials, 90% of what you find is going to be on the USS Arizona I think that if I do an episode, Pearl Harbor deserves its own episode. I wanted to talk more about commercial fishing and things like that. That gives you like an idea of the two big ones. Um, like I said, I got really deep into this and I read a lot about like the fishing industry and things like that. And I don't know if I've been able to draw absolute conclusions. I'm not saying that these are the only shipwreck memorials. There are certainly other ones. Um, for example, like certain branches of the armed forces have them. Um, in Chatham, Massachusetts, behind, beside the Coast Guard Station, there is um, the Mack Memorial, which is a memorial to seven crewmen who perished in the line of duty in March of 1902, trying to rescue the crew of the barge Wadena. Um, there are certainly plenty of naval memorials, things like that. Um, most national cemeteries have a cenotaph to those lost at sea. If you remember the military episodes I did last spring, I talked about the fact that, you know, the majority of Navy men who died were buried at sea. I think that commercial fishing, again, is something that just doesn't get enough attention. And so that's why I wanted to focus more on that. Um, luckily, a lot of these places, are, they are listed on the National Register. They are considered very significant um, many of these shipwrecks themselves are actually listed on the National Register, and so they are protected. Um, there are whole groups of people at the National Park Service who are responsible for underwater resources. So even though time will definitely deteriorate them, they are well documented. I think it's tragic enough to have a loved one lost at sea. But how do you really build an appropriate memorial for that? I think that more so than having an individual headstone to visit, these communal monuments are important because they are communal expressions of grief. That That's really the only thing that I can come to the conclusion of is that, you know, everyone can gather there and they can share their grief. They don't necessarily have a grave. And that's hard. That's hard. Um... But, like I said, I think that all of these folks who take the risk as sailors, they know the consequences and they know that things might not end well and they will end up being buried at sea. 
I can remember when John F. Kennedy Jr. died and, you know, they spent all of that time searching for his plane, which went down off Martha's Vineyard. And I remember this very vividly because I was vacationing in Martha's Vineyard when it happened. Um, And all of us were kind of like on the beach looking to see if bodies or luggage or something washed up more than 20 years ago now. And then they chose to have them buried at sea afterwards. I think it's almost, to a certain degree, it's kind of a sign of respect to a noteworthy adversary. Uh, The sea is powerful. It's very powerful. And I think that if you work on it or work around it, you have a healthy respect and fear for it. But also, it's like, all right, if you take me down, I'll go down with you. Those are my deep philosophical thoughts for the week. We will continue our discussion next week with the decision of people who want to be buried at sea. Um, I don't know if it'll be slightly more cheerful. This is a cemetery podcast. If you came for for cheer and joy, you maybe are in the wrong place. Um, But I will look at the, the rules and regs and the people who have chosen this. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, please, please rate and review on your podcast apps. Um, I will say that the new thing is, is that Spotify, if you are a listener on Spotify, they are starting to rank podcasts, not necessarily with reviews, but by follows. So if you do listen every week on Spotify, I would ask that you click the follow button because apparently that does help you become more visible, even though you can't write a review on there. Um, Apple podcast reviews always help, just help make me more visible. If you are interested in seeing extra tidbits, please follow along on social media, Tomb of the View podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. As always, if you want to get in touch with me, I know I have not been great about getting back to, I I almost gotten all through the DMs. My email is still a bit of a mess because I did take the week off from that, but I will be getting back to that soon. So if you want to reach out, you want to suggest a topic, anything like that, please feel free to reach out at Tomb of the View podcast on gmail.com at gmail.com. It's been a long week. But as always, you guys have a wonderful weekend. I'm Liz Clappin, and this is Tomb of the View.